paying a lot of attention to the 23 times in 34 verses from chapter 7, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 6, that the word priest or priesthood is mentioned, it becomes obvious what the subject of the writer to the Hebrews is. The priesthood. And the question that looms kind of forward is, why is the issue of the priest or the priesthood so suddenly, you know, you get through six chapters of uh, Hebrews, why at chapter 7 does this subject become paramount in the writer to the Hebrews' mind and in his focus and in his writing? Especially given the fact that previously there had been uh, much attention given to Jesus. Right? You have Jesus being superior to the angels in chapters 1 and 2. You have Jesus being superior to Moses in chapter 3. You have Jesus giving a superior rest to the believer in chapter 4. Much attention given to the Lord Jesus up until this point, not to mention the warnings that we've been given or that the reader or that the Hebrew or that the believer has been given up until this point, of course, the warning of drifting away through neglect of the things that they had heard and that we had heard of so great a salvation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The warning of willfully neglecting to listen and hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, which would result in a hardened heart and unbelief, chapter 3, verse 14. The warning of falling short of the complete rest that the believer has in Christ Jesus, the rest in God's promises that he made for his people, chapter 4, verse 11. So again, why the emphasis on the priesthood and more specifically this person of Melchizedek, why has it become so important? We asked that question in the beginning of a two-part series. Today is the second part. Last week we began with that question, why is Melchizedek significant? And we, we answered uh, with three facts. If you were with us, we saw that according to the first portion of chapter 7, Melchizedek arriving on the scene in uh, Genesis 14, uh, in the valley of Shiva, in Salem, the city of the king, in the land of Canaan, a, a land filled with a society that practiced legalized uh, homosexuality, child sacrifice, idolatry, a, a vile and perverted society, not only the Canaanites themselves, but the surrounding Hivites, Jebusites. And yet there in this valley was this Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And we saw last week that what that the significance of that is that he represents 
the general revelation of God to mankind. God has made himself known in general revelation to all of humanity. Now I must offer to you and those of you watching at home a correction this morning. I was reminded and thought about it myself personally before I was reminded that I had misspoke about who Lot was last week. I called him Abraham's brother. He is not Abraham's brother. He's Abraham's nephew. And so I correct that this morning. He is the grandson of Terah and the son of... What was that guy's name? Genesis 13. His father. Haran. So Lot's father was Haran. Haran was Abraham's brother. Lot is Abraham's nephew. And so not only did we see that... Melchizedek represents the general revelation of God. But secondly, last week we saw that he, as a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, also represented and pointed to a greater authority than the patriarchs and Abraham. Thirdly, last week we saw that Melchizedek's presence when uh, Abraham was there in the valley of Shiva, and the king of Sodom and Melchizedek came to meet him after uh, Abraham rescuing his, his nephew Lot, uh, that Melchizedek was there and brought out bread and wine, and the king of Sodom came out and, and offered uh, Abraham to take, uh, take things, and we... Abraham refused. He refused to take anything from the king of Sodom so that the king of Sodom could not say that he had made Abraham rich. And we applied these things in the sense that the world, the king of Sodom, the adversary of our soul, the devil himself, will offer multiple times throughout everyone's life to to give you things of the world. And yet Melchizedek, the uh, foreshadow of the person of Jesus Christ, Christ in us, is to refuse, reject what the world has to offer because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so this morning we pick up now in our second uh, part of this study to continue to ask and answer the question, what is significant about Melchizedek? As we read in verse 11, that he uses, the writer to the Hebrews begins verse 11 with that word, therefore again. If you're taking note this morning, that's the 13th time in this book of 28 insertions of the word therefore, always building upon one another that the Levitical priesthood was not perfect. And we must uh, remind ourselves of a basic truth. That to the Hebrew, of which the writer is writing, the Jew was to be God's witness to the earth. And 
In the mind of the Hebrew, Judaism, their religion, meant access to God. It was access to God that was important. And yet for access to God to take place, two things needed to exist. You know what they are under Judaism. The law and the priesthood. The law was, of course, a set of divine commandments that if they were faithful to obey the law of God, the law of Moses often referred to, that the door to the presence of God would be opened. But they found that they couldn't obey that law. They found that they failed often in seeking to obey that law, hence the need for the priesthood and the whole sacrificial system. The word priest in the Latin is defined as pontifex. We have heard often pontiff as a reference to what we know to be the Pope. And the word in the Latin means bridge builder. In other words, the function of the priest under Judaism was that he was to be a bridge builder for men and women to God through the means of the sacrificial system. Yet that system wasn't perfect. That's why we read it in verse 11. If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? As we work our way through the passage, what's interesting to me and hopefully interesting you to note is that every Hebrew scholar in seeking to bring an argument to the Hebrew listener would employ two things. They would employ what was called the four meanings of a passage and secondly the utterings or utterances and the silences. In the four meanings to the passage, let me explain. Every Hebrew believed that every passage of Scripture, and we'd be talking about the, the Old Testament, right? That every passage of Scripture had four meanings. And to those four meanings, they gave names. The first was called the Pesat. It was the literal or the factual meaning of the passage. The second was the Ramaz, and I... I may not be pronouncing these absolutely correctly. Second was Ramaz, and it was the, the suggested meaning of the passage. The third was the Derush, which was a, a meaning that you, a meaning of a passage that you arrived at after careful and long investigation. Now hang in there. The fourth, the fourth uh, meaning of a passage was the Sod, S-O-D, and it was the allegorical, mystical, or inner meaning of the passage. Guess which one the Hebrew was most concerned with? The fourth. The allegorical, the mystical, the inner meaning of a passage. 
And it is true, as Barclay tells us, that they were far more interested in the allegorical and mystical meaning, even if it did not connect with the factual and literal points. So every Hebrew scholar would employ those four meanings to a passage. Secondly, they would also employ what was called the, the um, sentences, I'm sorry, the utterances and the silences. What do I mean by that? Well, they would pay as much attention to what was not said about something as what was being said about something. And here, in this particular section of the, of the passage, the writer is doing the same thing that any scholar would do as he's bringing an argument to the Hebrew reader about the reality of Jesus Christ by what he does not say about Melchizedek as well as what he does say. And they found that the Levitical order was imperfect. And therefore there was a rising of another order after the order of Melchizedek. I draw your attention to verse 12 and forward, which reads... Uh, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken, that would be, of course, Christ, but Melchizedek as a foreshadow of Christ. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood, and it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life, for he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Once again, the writer to the Hebrews cites a reference that every Hebrew listening would have heard that uh, reference. It comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. And it was a, it's a prophetic psalm. The patriarch David was writing, and very familiar to you and I perhaps, but in this moment, it was intended to connect the Hebrew Christian who had doubts about now what was to be faith in Christ alone. It was intended to connect them to the reality of, of this new way in which the door to access to God would be opened. Psalm 110 says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. And in the beauties of your holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever 
according to the order of Melchizedek. It is prophetic. It was speaking specifically about the coming of the Messiah and who the Messiah would be. So, they found the imperfection, or the writer to the Hebrews is saying he has found that the Levitical priesthood was imperfect. The bridge builder was flawed. The bridge builder was weak. The bridge builder was unprofitable in leaving the door to access to God open. And he summarizes it there in verse 18 in the first half. Notice, he says, For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. Underline that verse, if you will. Underline those words. The law of God, though it is rich in its... uh, As I said Wednesday night, we know that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed... And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Jesus said to the Pharisees and Sadducees that did, you know, comb the Old Testament to try and find life. And he would say to them, you do search the scriptures for in them you think you have life. But they are which testify of me. Jesus is there. And the writer to the Hebrews is seeking to underscore that the law made nothing perfect. I hope this morning that we would hear there's no need to try and live by the law of God and find that that is the way that access to God, the door will be opened. Because it's not. It's annulled. The covenant of the law has been done away with, but rather overshadowed by what we know to be a new covenant. For in the second half of verse 19, we find, on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Isn't that beautiful? You see, under the Old covenant under the Levitical priesthood. The problem was that the worshiper would end up with a dashed hope. What do I mean by that? I mean that the the door to the access to God was often left closed because they would have to wait until the next opportunity to see the priest the next opportunity to bring an offering of sacrifice, the next trip to the temple. Their hopes were often dashed because there was another individual involved in their access to God. And yet we find that on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope, verse 19, through which we draw near to God. Reading on, he says, And inasmuch as we have not made, uh, he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath, by him who said, The Lord has sworn, 
and will not relent, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. And so we finally come to the fourth significance of this Melchizedek, because he is indeed a foreshadowing of Christ. He himself pointed to a better hope and a better covenant in which the door and the access to God would remain open through Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can't get to God any other way. I heard it very recently. You know, how many people would like to be close to God? How many people would like to know God? How many people have you met that would say, gee, I'd really like to, to be close to that deity called God? Well, there's no way to do that except through the Son. No man can come to the Father except through the Son. And so the beauty of, of knowing God is coming to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Coming to know him as the one whose body and blood was given to pay the price for our sin. The one who willingly, willfully placed himself upon the cross at Calvary. For you and for me. And if you're here this morning and, and you've come to that truth, that's something you understand, that Jesus died for you and you've committed your life to Christ, do you know that the access to God, the door to his presence, is opened? It's not shut anymore. You and I can... We're invited to walk right into the Holy of Holies through the blood of Jesus Christ and there in his presence to find help in time of need. Why would we not take advantage of that? Why would we not love to just, as Mary did, sit at his feet? How? When was the last time you stopped your life long enough to just sit at the feet of Jesus. Maybe the Holy Spirit puts his gentle thumb or finger on, on a place in your heart that says, that's what I'm missing. You know, if you love someone, you spend time with them. If you love someone, you talk with them. You love Jesus this morning? Oh, I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm not even talking about reading your Bible. I'm talking about Jesus. Do you love him? Or is he this thing that's attached to, quote, Christianity, unquote? He's a person. <laughs> And he's risen. And he, to you and I who have said, Father, forgive me, I believe that Jesus is your only begotten son and that he paid the price for my sin, the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, and I ask for his forgiveness today. Will you come and 
forgive me and take up residence in my heart. He take up residence in your heart. He didn't forget the day you said that. If you've said that. When you said that. He hasn't forgotten. And how true is it that those of us that may have some understanding of, of a biblical Christianity that Christ, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and yes, he died uh, for the sin of mankind. How, how many, especially in this Western culture, just, you know, we're ready to go on with our lives when he says, I love you so much that I gave my life for you. Will you spend some time with me? I just want to eat with you. I want to I be next to you. I want to walk with you. Do you hear him whispering to you today? Stop the busyness. There's no value in the, the rhetoric of doing, 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 doing. If you do anything this week, if you hear anything this morning, take this week to carve out quiet, uninterrupted time with Christ himself. And watch him bless you. Watch him speak to you. Because the door is now open to the believer. A better covenant. A better hope. That's the significance of Melchizedek. As a foreshadow of Christ. Moving on and wrapping it up. We read in verse 23. That also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, under the old Levitical priesthood, remember the writer to the Hebrews began this section by saying, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood. Now here he's reminding us that there were many priests, they were prevented from continuing because they died. You know, you'd have this one guy or multiple guys under the tribe of Levi that would be there to help the worshiper find access to God. But then that guy died. And they would have to bring somebody else. And then that guy would die. And then somebody else and that guy would... Guess what? Each one of us today, I hope this brings a smile to your face, we have an appointment with death. And you might, Art, that's almost weird. Why are you smiling about that? <laughs> to those in chronic pain and, and life-threatening illnesses, I am not being tongue-in-cheek. What I'm endeavoring to do is to remind us as Christians that Leaving this life is a graduation. It's like from here into his presence. Anybody want to go? <laughs> it's like, come Lord Jesus, I'm ready. Do you know there's an organization out there that says this is heaven and Jesus has already come? Oh my. No names mentioned. If this is heaven... Help 
That's all I can think of. No, no, there's a better thing coming, and that's, you know, Sherry and I often talk, is that we're not afraid of dying, we just wonder what the process is going to be, right? And maybe you and I can echo that today. It's like, you know, not afraid to, to enter his presence, it's just, Lord, is it going to be long and arduous and painful? And for some, it is long, sometimes it's very difficult. It's most difficult to watch those that we love pass over a long process. But this door that, that the Hebrew was hoping would always be open was like shut every time a priest would die. Another priest opened, then shut, a priest would die. And the door keep being opened couldn't continue, it was prevented by death, verse 24, but he, who's he? Circle it, underline it, who's he? Jesus Christ. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchanging, unchangeable priesthood. He continues forever. Therefore, 14th time in the book of Hebrews, he is also able, this is a classic little area here, got to hear it if you're at home, don't go get the cup of coffee right yet, stay with me. Verse 25, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What's the antithesis to that? You who are understand the English language and you who are destined to do logical questioning to the scriptures. He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. In other words, anyone trying to get to God not coming through him cannot be saved. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know what that intercession is? The Bible tells us that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for you and I. Oh my goodness, have you ever been the beneficiary of someone praying for you during a hard time? Have you ever come to someone after that little season in your life and went, man, I sensed those prayers. Uh, you know, worse things could have happened and I saw bad things and difficult things and hard things that could have happened, but I knew you were praying and, and God just kind of lifted me and carry, carried me and you thanked that person, you hugged that person, thank you for praying for me. Jesus is praying for you and me right now at the right hand of the Father. Yeah. We'll take it. Because he doesn't just do it for a minute. He ever lives to make intercession for them. Everlasting intercession done by the Son of God for such a high priest, verse 26, was fitting for us. Notice, who is holy and harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices 
first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For this he did once for all when he offered himself. You see, under the old covenant, it was continual sacrifice because there was continual failure. There was a continual need to always go back, sacrifice against that. Whoops, missed it. Oh, close to God, oh, fell away. Close to God, oh, fell away. Obeyed, didn't obey. Oh, no, I'm not there. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Wouldn't that be tiring? It is tiring. And he didn't have to offer sacrifice for his sins as the priest under the old covenant did. For he himself was separate from sinners. He became sin who knew no sin. He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He offered himself. When was the last time you offered yourself for someone? When was the last time you actually relinquished every right you think you have on behalf of your love and care for someone else and said, I'm yours all to do with what you desire. I know for me personally, in my own household, there was kind of a a very recent reckoning of that and a reminder that as we sang this morning, there's, there's total beauty in surrender. If you're going to hold on, I'm right, I know I'm right, and I'm going to stay right. We as parents sometimes treat our kids that way, right? Like, I'm right, and they're they're going to fall in line. And yet there's such a thing as being dead right. You can be so right in your position of rightness that you fail to communicate life in the correctness of your attitude or behavior. Why are we here? (laughs) Surrender. When was the last time you completely surrendered all that you believe you have the right to hold on to for the sake of of your love and care for someone else? That's what Jesus did. He gave up everything, left eternity to come down and take on God incarnate, to take on human flesh, and then surrender himself so that you and I Today, 2,000 years later, would not have to wait for the priest to walk through the door. Anybody still waiting for the priest to walk through the door to be all right with God? They need this Bible study right here. 
so that the door to the access to God would remain open because of his once and for all giving of himself. It's the gospel. And we'll close with this. Verse 28, For the law appoints a high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son. Do you notice that? Circle it, underline it, capital S, the Son who has been perfected forever. The fifth and final significance of Melchizedek is that he, as a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, points to an endless, ending, unending, eternal high priest that gave himself once as a sacrifice, holy, undefiled, and harmless to the Father for us. Access to God forever available, the door forever open. This Melchizedek is a very significant individual in Scripture. As I mentioned last week, that you know, if God wants to make a real point of something, he mentions it three times. And Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis 14, he's mentioned in Psalm 110, and then he's mentioned twice, if not three times, here in the book of Hebrews. Very significant individual. Why? As we wrap it up. Summary, he, he represents a general revelation of God himself to fallen mankind. Secondly, he represents a greater authority than that of the patriarchs and of Abraham. Thirdly, he represents power, the power of a risen Christ as a foreshadow of Jesus Christ when Melchizedek's presence with Abraham, emboldened him to refuse what the king of Sodom was offering. Fourthly, he represents a better hope and a better covenant because he is, in fact, the foreshadow of Jesus Christ who brings a better hope and a better covenant. And lastly, he is significant because he represents Jesus who is able to save and lives forever. Final note. Haven't said it all two weeks right now. Hold on to your hat. Big word, theophany. Many scholars believe, and I would embrace this. I'm not a scholar, but as a Bible teacher, many scholars believe that Melchizedek, who shows up on the scene without father, father without mother, without genealogy, a king of righteousness in the city of peace whom Abraham paid tied to and acknowledged his great authority was in fact an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It's called a theophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And as important as that is, what's even of greater value is for us to understand his significance completely, which I believe we've endeavored to do over these last couple of weeks. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Have you told him you love him and spent time with him recently? Are you willing to do that Moving forward.
Will you pray with me? And we'll close. Lord, as we end our time together this morning and particularly over these last couple of weeks looking at this uh, important biblical figure of Melchizedek and even recognizing more importantly how he foreshadows you, the person of Jesus, and the work that you did on the cross at Calvary. As, as we are here this morning Lord, and and we've been opened to your word. And we're reminded that because of, of your great sacrifice, that the door is opened to the throne room of God, but there's a requirement. A man, a woman, a young person can't just sashay into the holiness of God without something taking place first. Their clothes must change. Instead of the filth of sin, they must be clothed with the garment of righteousness. Their heart must change. Instead of a heart of flesh and stone, it must be a heart that is delights in the Lord. And though the invitation goes out even right now to maybe some in this room or those watching at home that have, that have yet to really surrender their life to Christ, today it becomes clear again that Jesus is asking and time is short. We see world events drawing things to a certain uh, dangerous point in human history. Not to mention that we could get in our vehicle and drive out of this parking lot and some yahoo on the other side of the road not paying attention could immediately bring an end to what we know to be life. Lord, if there are any here, would you speak to their heart today? If there are any watching, would you speak to their heart today that you're saying, I've given my life to save yours. I invite you to receive my forgiveness and accept the propitiation of my blood. And Lord, this morning, maybe there are also others that know the joy of walking with you and yet surrender in their life has been hard. And they're here this morning. They came through the doors, Lord, convinced that they're still right about their perspective. And yet, you're reminding them as you're reminding me. Surrender is beautiful. 
Perhaps you're speaking, Lord, to that one who already knows you and has committed their life to you to freshly surrender. If that's them, Lord, that's you this morning, would you take him up on his invitation and respond as we worship, as we sing? Lord, we want you to be glorified in our lives and in this church, which is your church this body of believers so come Lord we pray empower us to surrender and we will give you the praise but we ask it in Jesus name Amen